0: This is No Training Wheels, and I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Welcome to part two of our interview with Rob Laybourne of the Armed Forces Cycling Classic. During the course of the interview, we were given a tour of what is developing into quite the archive for professional bike racing in the mid-Atlantic. Rob has a huge collection of old promotional material, challenge coins from prior years, original artwork that he's had commissioned for the event in different iterations and at different times, and also something that is quite the collectible, signed promotional posters by all the top finishers of the race. It really leads one to believe that Rob is completely, totally invested in not just promoting a great race and putting on a great event, but also preserving the history and the lineage of the event for future generations. In this episode, we focus more on the professional part of promoting a professional bike race. And it really should be required listening for anybody who's interested in not just understanding how to promote a cycling event and how to provide value to sponsors and different ways to think of generating revenue, but also to anybody who's interested in trying to understand why endurance athletes, and cyclists in specific, are so passionate about the sports that they participate in. These aren't necessarily huge money makers like baseball, football, and basketball, but the level of enthusiasm and the commitment to excellence that cycling fans and cycling participants bring to their events is unmatched. So we've arrived now at chapter two of this interview. I I know that it it seems like we've only just begun. And uh, this is the part where, you know, we talk about running a professional level race where you have some of the things you've talked about. I mean, let's look Look at the elements of the Armed Forces Cycling Classic. You have an expo. You have a VIP catered viewing area. You have a jumbotron. You've got fixed and movable camera positions. You have professional announcers. You've got this broadcast, which goes out on Monumental Sports Network. Obviously, the 1988 version of the- 98. 98 98. Excuse me. The 1998 version of the event didn't have that. How did the event evolve to become this incredibly precisely well-run controlled chaos that is Saturday and Sunday in Arlington, Virginia?
1: The basic elements for a race, I think, are, you know, you have a finish line, you hire some referees, you get a sanctioning, you know, permit, uh, you get some closed roads, uh, and you... Have a registration form and system, and you know people sign waivers, and you have a race. I mean, it's 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 really not complicated, and to to have a race. And so I think that when uh, when I first volunteered to be the race director of um, a race that for copies, when I was a member of that team back in ninety seven, I volunteered to be the race director because back then, uh, USA Cycling or USCF, I think they were at the time, uh, clubs were required to put races on or be on a permit. That's changed, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. I think that rule should be back in place and very, very important, and I'll explain why. Prior to that, I was living in California. I had been on a team, and again, we had to be on a permit to be a a sanctioned club, and so I volunteered um, with the club at a race And that experience that I got helping registration or being on a course marshal gave me just enough scary confidence that I could be a race director. And so that's why I volunteered to be our race director for our club. And, uh, you know, ironic as it turns out, the career I was in at the time, a business development manager for the aerospace defense industry, having experience as an engineer, uh, being a responsible engineer... Which was a you know program manager type. Those kind of experiences and skills were things that I actually draw upon now, being a race director. Because really, you're a logistics manager. You're you know taking all these moving parts and then organizing them and you know to all come together at a certain point. And so the one thing I'll say I want to and I really want to emphasize this. I'll say it again that every if you're a member of a club. If you, you know, if you have a club or if you want to be part of a club, if you race, you really should find a way to be a part of an event. It's so important to, for us to be good stewards. And I can't emphasize this enough that the USA Cycling needs to reexamine that requirement, that clubs need to be on permits. And I think that at the time when they removed that requirement, it was uh, I think they may have had some good intentions that maybe it wasn't necessary, and that we shouldn't require people; they'll want to do it. But I think the reality is that that has to be put back in place. The unintended consequences, I believe, and I think we should look at the data, is that events have gone away. I think that there's fewer race days now than there used to be, and I think that's partly because people aren't required to. And I think it's important that that we have parking lot crits. so we have. You know, trade zone races, things like that, where not only can people get experience putting races on, but also we can have races for people to get experience in doing that aren't necessarily Clarendon. You know, I don't recommend anyone to do a Clarendon now, to get back to your, your question, how did it evolve to what it is today? You know, the first year it was a droopy banner and some hay bales and some snow fencing, and you know, I just kind of threw it together. But it was all the same basic elements, right? It was the start line. It was a closed course. It was a permit that I got to the city. Um, you know, all those pieces. We had officials. And th- those are basic stuff that it's not hard to put together. Every year, though, since day one, I've always, you know, once I feel like I've mastered or learned how to do one piece well, I'll then add something else to it. And so that's what I've done over the years is every year we've... You know, added a you know a, the kids race more, or focused more on that, or you know had a jumbotron, or added the the challenge ride, or added day two. You know, so you know if you look over the years, it's an evolution of just you know adding another layer of complexity to the event to what it is today.
0: Let's focus because this is one of the things that I wasn't actually intending on talking about, which is always dangerous as a lawyer. You never want to ask a witness a question you don't know the answer to, but it's. Fortunately,
1: this isn't a deposition, so I'm not that.
0: <laughs> that, <worried. laughs> that's, that is also equally true. Um, USA Cycling uh, and the requirement for clubs to put on events. So, as the former mobber president and as somebody who was highly involved in trying to get people involved in the sport to put mm-hmm. skin in the game and to be good stewards to be good stewards, uh, you, we wanted to broaden the scope of race promotion to create a mentor-mentee system where clubs who don't have the experience in promoting an event would partner with clubs that did have an experience Mm -hmm. promoting the event so that the hope is three years down the line, they can put on their own event. It, it, It goes and fits and starts. So you get one or two people to buy in and it goes forward and then it comes backwards and it goes forward and then it comes backwards and involvement. Why why do you think it's so critical for for a club for members of clubs to have that requirement to put on a race
1: so number one to be good stewards i think that you know you can't just take from the sport you have to give back i mean we we only are here because of the shoulders of people that we stand on you know that have put on races or that you know help bring the sport to what it is today so i think it's really important um one of the messages that I like to share as well is that I wouldn't be here today if that requirement wasn't in place and that my club never would have probably not put on a race. I would not have had that experience and naive confidence that I could put a race on, so I wouldn't be here today. And so I think that, you know, if you want to find the next Clarendon Cups or the next Rochester Twilights or the Athens or whatever, you know, you need, that That needs to be a requirement. And, and it's it's one of those things that, you know, we're watching Apollo 11 last night, right? So, you know, what was the the outcome of going to the moon, right? It wasn't a bunch of rocks we had. It was all the technology we developed. And so there's all these consequences that take place when you have things that you put, you, you have rules and regulations and things like that. And so I, I do believe that, that that's one of the outcomes comes that you will see that you know you will have people that have will have the confidence to be that guy or that will they'll be exposed to to helping put it on like wow that was really fun I'll I I can do that and so you know if you don't have that stick let's say in place I think that you lose the opportunities for people to discover they could enjoy doing it or that they're good at doing it
0: the question the ultimate question here is going to be why and I'm going to Backtrack through the thought process that I've got going on here. Why do you do all these things? Why the Jumbotron? Why the broadcast? Why the expo? Why all of that? Why are you providing this type of environment? And what do you see the benefit for your events? I'm a bike racer. Like I said earlier, I'll race to a white line on a road uh, any day of the week In fact, some of the best sprints that I've ever had were me going mano-a-mano with Curtis Windsor of of Kenda Pro for the town line sprint Mm -hmm. in Lovettsville, Virginia. And that was only worth three points in our competition. The state lines were nine points. So (laughs) what is the thing that drives you to constantly push the envelope to make the event more and more, and the only word that I can use here is, professional?
1: To even step back further, you know what drives me to even want to put a bike, bike race on in the first place. And so, you know, for me, I, I love the sport, and it was it was very meaningful to me. Getting in, getting into cycling, you know, I worked at a bike shop in high school, but I didn't race a bike. I didn't wasn't involved in racing. I moved to California, frankly, to you know smoke a lot of pot and drink beer and party after college and play golf. That was really kind of my objective, and I ended up discovering bike racing and riding and. Did a century, and then got into racing, and loved it. And that was, a, you know, it was the sport involvement that kind of helped me um, become who I am today, and and it got me out of that party scene, you know, and 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 you know, kind of straighten out my life. And and so I always felt very obligated to you know, give back to that sport. And so, you know, for me, the, the biggest motivation is to you know continually to be able to look back that I you know, have given back to my sport and that I've, you know, created a legacy, you know, that can be carried on that, you know, is, that I can be proud of. And so, you know, I, 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 I want to have something that I can be proud of. And, and I think that what keeps me adding to it and building on it is that, you know, the same reason that what drives you to that finish line, that white line is I want to be, I guess I'm insecure. I want to be, I want to be, you know, people to tell me that I have a good event, you know, and so I, I, but I never feel like I'm ever there, and so I'm always wanting to do more and make it better and make it a, be, you know, create more to to have, so more people come, you know, more people come make makes my insecurity feel better. More teams come make me feel better, you know. So that's kind of why I guess I do that, and so I, you know, I would love to see you know, as many people at my event as at an Athens or who used to come to Philly. I'd love to see as many teams want to come to my event as, you know, a tour of California, let's say, you know, so I I kind of put my aspirations out there and and I, you know, I I feel like we've come a long way since that first Droopy Banner year, but there's always, you know, more that we can do.
0: Because it's a professional event, because it's an event, things cost money and Clarendon probably costs a lot more money than the parking lot crit that's not to say anything good or bad about the parking lot crit or about Clarendon but because we're talking about building professional bike races and all these different things what are we looking for as far as kind of the the quantum or a magnitude for an operating budget for an event like Clarendon
1: well I mean I started um, I think the first year I did a you know back of the envelope Calculations that well, okay, so if I've got you know eight ten races. I'm going to generate X dollars for registration fees. So that's going to be you know eight nine thousand dollars. And I happened to get lucky through a friend who introduced me to an ad agency who had a customer, a partner, a client that was looking to do events in the area. And so they brought another nine thousand dollars in sponsorship money. And so you know a twenty thousand dollar budget was you know a doable thing for what we were trying to create. And at the time, you know, Arlington didn't necessarily charge as much as they do for the overtime for police, and so we were able to do events back in, in the first couple of years, you know, at a much lesser cost than what we, we pay we now pay. Over time, they've changed the rules and things how they support events, but mainly because more events want to do have events, and so they're like, okay, well, we'll have to charge you now. So, so you know, price the fees go up, um, prize money goes up, all that kind of stuff, and so. I think to do, you know, an event, you'll need a fifteen twenty dollars 20000 budget, you know, to kind of get going. And then it just goes up from there. I mean, how much do you want to advertise and promote it? I think that it that's a really important part of your budget because, you know, without advertising and promotion, people don't know about it. And so, you know, if you want people to come, if you want racers to participate, you have to reach out to them. You know, early on, it was all you had to do was put an ad in the racing news or the you know, whatever the publication was, and the writers would come put an ad in Velo News, and that would get them right. And so, things have changed a little bit now. So you have to do a little, be a little more creative. Social media has, has really changed a lot of things in our sport, and I think it's really it's 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 a, been a very disruptive technology in our sport. And and we can talk. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or later, but
0: talk about it now because oh, okay. you can't escape social media right. in any type of professional sporting activity, any type of professional entertainment industry, social media is a monolith. And whether it be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, Snapchat, all right. of it, how has it become part of your your life as a race promoter?
1: Social media is really helpful for events. And I think that, that I would love to see you know, those platforms really focus more on that kind of stuff versus it becoming an alternative for, you know, news outlets. I, I really, it's a whole other conversation. But uh, from a standpoint of an event director, it's a great platform, right? So we can put information out, it, it, can, it can go viral, you know, wherever that means. I, I haven't experienced any viral thing with my event other than a crash, unfortunate crash one year in, in Crystal City. You know, at an event promotion standpoint, being able to get information out, get highlights, you know, spread the word. You know, they're great platforms and they're very cost effective. But it's getting, it's getting tougher now. I mean, it, when I first started using Facebook, um, you know, our, our reach and our audience was growing organically. And unless you pay for it now, you're not going to get it. You know, so to try to get eyeballs to your site is just getting more and more of a challenge. Um, you know, again, we have a pretty decent following. It's not exceptional. Um would love to have more, but, you know, we have to start paying for it if we want more people to like and follow our, our stuff.
0: Do you see an ROI when you do pay for it?
1: ROI with racing, in the old days when we first started, you know, you, you kind of counted your, your unearned and earned media and you associated value to it because it was an open ad rate and you kind of, you know, calculated what, you know, what your, your event generated. Social media exposure is a much more amorphous animal. It's really, you know, do 5,000 followers on my page, what does that really mean? Is there, you know, is there really a one-to-one comparison you can have with the old days, right? So if if you want to put an ad in the Washington Post, it would cost you, you know, $1,000 per column inch. And so if you got coverage of your event, that was a good way to sort of say my event got you know, five inches in the post, so it was worth $5,000. You know, that was a really simple way to sort of equate that, and then sponsors would say, okay, well, that's great that you were at five lines, but it was words. They didn't really talk about it, but it was, you know, we'll, we'll say that, you know, for us, an ROI is worth, you know, a third of that. And so, you know, you have these, you know, the rules that were kind of set up. Social media being kind of a per- predominant media coverage now is, it's, you know, we, we're not, we don't have that, we don't know yet. It's still kind of a, kind of magical, I think, to some extent. But we still rely on some of the traditional ways we measure our success um, and just looking at how many people are there, you know, does it look good or not? There's just really kind of a lot of gut things that we have to contend with. How many people signed up, you know, the, the real holy grail for us is to create what's called affinity programs and that's really where i'm i've been working you know if you talk about the evolution of the event working towards you know creating sponsorships or partnerships where we can completely associate our event with the traffic or the sale that that sponsor made and so you know rotha for instance you know they they did our vip tent they would love to have a coupon code that know that is only associated with our event and so every time that coupon code is used they can associate that sale with our event so you know we're working on those kind of programs we have a few that we've tried in the past one of the things with our live broadcast is we also look at you know we're trying a pay-per-view model where um, and that's evolved over the years where we now offer this year a kind of a a traditional straight on like it's a ten dollar show you pay 10 bucks you get to watch the whole live broadcast. If we can tie that in with the teams that are coming and they get a coupon code and a shared revenue stream, that's ultimately where I would love to have us get to as a sport where we can now, you know, not just deliver return on investment for sponsorships, but also generate revenue from a shared advertising model that's directly associated with your advertising and your
0: promotion. One of the things that I noticed at Clarendon this year was the the flyer that I got or the the taco oh, code. Yeah. yeah, we we actually collected them from a bunch of different people <laughs> to make sure that we had a full set. <laughs> uh, everybody wanted the the Justin Williams one and the and the uh, the uh, young one because right, right. that was a that was a guaranteed winner almost. Right. Uh, is that kind of the thing you're talking about? Yeah, here? Exactly. Right. And so. You know, that's a
1: program that we're going to be uh, expanding coming up. Um, we're looking at not just having like one sponsor, like District Taco, sponsor all those cards, but we can envision um, having national brands um, be beyond the card. And so rather than just, you only get a taco if that, if someone on that team wins, let um, if, if, me back up and explain what the taco cards are. Go right, right? ahead. So, what we, um, we took a concept that had been used at other events um, of, of trying to engage the fans at the event to bring them in to watch and kind of follow riders. And so, the North Star Grand Prix used to make these cards of, of the riders and teams. And so, Brad Stoner, who's our announcer, came to me and said, Yeah, you should make cards for the riders and teams. And then, like, you know, if they win, they get something. And so, we kind of like, talked through that and came up with this concept. And so I reached out to District Taco and I said, you know, why don't you guys sponsor our team rider cards? And so we'll produce, you know, a dozen or so team cards highlighting a handful of men's and women's teams. And if someone from that team wins, that card can then be used as a coupon to, you know, in exchange for a free taco. So they liked that idea. Uh, we went forward and we made about... I think a hundred cards of each team that was you know highlighted, and so um, District Taco was only on the hook for about a hundred tacos at the Arlington locations, and so you know I think that was fairly successful. I think you know when we handed the cards out, everyone like oh this is really cool. I think it was cool on a couple levels, and this is just my I don't you know tell me because you collected all those cards. I think one it's an interesting piece to just To look at there's information on it you know that's one of the reasons we want to do it and it maybe may have engaged you a little bit more to to watch the riders Um, and it also gave you an opportunity to win something and so the evolution of that program is again bringing in some national brands like a raffle let's say where now the card itself this is this is another card we made but the card itself will be similar in design in which it will highlight a team And then, you know, talk about maybe a particular rider that's coming for that event, some of the things they've done at the event. Um, It may have the location of the live broadcast, the live stream, but it'll have a coupon that's good for anybody for any time. And so Rafa, for instance, uh, I talked to Ed at Rafa yesterday on 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 a ride, and he's very interested in in having Rafa get involved. And so, like, there'll be maybe a 5% off. Like, use this coupon code. Anyone who has one can go to rafa.com and, you know, get 5% off their purchase. If someone from that team wins, then you get a special prize. So maybe it's a a water bottle, a branded water bottle, or something, you know, more that has some value. And so that'll, you know, give you reason to want to have this card or cheer on that team. But maybe these cards can be a little more collectible, right? So we only have a limited edition. So now you have all... Just I've the got the of,
0: upper deck version exactly, as opposed right. to the tops version of the, <laughs> of the Zach Allison card. It's in mint condition, I'll be honest, and the mustache is incredible. And do
1: you do you have it signed by by Zach? Have you got an autograph on it yet? I now realize what
0: I'll have to do the there next time I
1: see him. Right, right. So um, so I think those are some things that we can kind of you know create this, you know, little components that that might take off. Um, so again, I I can envision. Um, These cards where we can go to maybe four or five events around the country, execute a program with them as well. The teams are then motivated to go to these four or five events as well because their cards are going to be there. We work with the teams well in advance to get the information for the cards. So I can see how that can evolve into something more than just, you know, fan engagement at our event.
0: Talk about revenue stream. For an event like Armed Forces, could an event like Armed Forces happen without sponsors?
1: So, you know, we have, our revenue is, you know, predominantly sponsorship driven right now. One of the reasons that we added the challenge ride, not just because they, you know, the Air Force wanted to have this ride and it's not involved, but it's also a revenue stream. You know, we um, we make a little bit, I'll call it, net, we net uh, revenue, you know, income from the challenge ride. So, you know, the... Fifteen hundred people, two thousand people to do the challenge ride. You know they're paying more than the road closure and the and the cost of you know of the expense. So we generate a little bit from that. We lose money on races. We don't we don't cover our overhead on on races, um, and so sponsorship really is the is the key as our our currently our key revenue stream. And that's why to me it's so important that not just even for me that we create and generate new revenue streams, whether it's from pay-per-view or these advertising models, the expo, those kinds of things. It's, it's, it's critical for our whole sport to, to look at those opportunities and help evolve and develop them to, to make more money. A VIP space, I think, is a potential revenue stream where if you really build out a nice one, people will pay 20 30 $40 to come in to be in that
0: space the The sponsorship funding model that is the basis of bike racing is in the basis of so many different sports. I recently had a conversation with a woman equestrian who competes on the Olympic level, and you could have had the exact same conversation with her as you could have had with any bike racer. Substitute horse for bike, and or uh, trailer for hitch rack, sort of thing. Right. The sponsors that you have for the Armed Forces Cycling Classic: Boeing is your is your title sponsor, your promoting sponsor. You also have Lockheed, Clark Construction, Total Civil Construction, Altamira is one of your top mm-hmm. line. These aren't the bike industry <laughs> norms, you know. There's no Shimano, Shram. Well, Shimano's a
1: sponsor, yeah, yeah. We do have industry sponsors, right. Trek, um, but they're you know the uh, not to interrupt, but. Um, I think you know one of the, the, what I've discovered early on in this process is that if you want to build your event and generate more revenue than a trickle, you can't rely on the industry to help support that. Everyone's asking for them for something. They're, you know they're asking for a handout. Um, they don't have a lot to give out. That's not going to be a source of, of large amounts of revenue. And so we always looked outside that. I mean we were lucky. Early on, with you know Mercury and Postal Service were sponsors of the of cycling, and so they were looking at events, and you know we were a benef- benefactor of their involvement. Um, but that also helped open the door to you know working with organizations and companies like that, um, and the CSC sponsorship. That was another you know really major opportunity for us that helped us again turn the page from relying on industry to really, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies.
0: So with a company like Boeing, uh, or with Lockheed, the ROI that you're providing to them, I don't know if it's a really a measurable metric, you know, because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of ways to do a coupon code for a defense contract, (laughs) or, or for a new line of aircraft. But as a teaching point for other promoters, for younger promoters, for promoters who are coming up, what do you feel that you provide to a to a Fortune 500 company that you sell to them as a means of getting those types of outside industry people involved?
1: So, you know, anytime you have an event that has grown to the size of in the history that, you know, that we enjoy um, one of the, I think, the pieces that, or the reasons that large companies look at uh, and want to be part of is, you know, h- how are you part of the community fabric? You know, what does this mean to, you know, Arlington and and the and the major metropolitan D.C. area? I think arguably we're the top cycling event in the region, right? I mean, I don't know if there's really much that are that have been around as long and that. Uh, have the legacy of the tradition that we have to bring in the you know the breadth of the cycling people, uh, whether it's the challenge riders or the racers and all that, and what we kind of give back to the community. So I, I think that for a, a Boeing, they're also in their culture, being a very active people that's very important to them. Um, their CEO is a regular cyclist. He rides a lot, um, but they have a whole tradition, throughout their entire company, they have for a long time of recognizing and rewarding people that are want to have an active lifestyle. You know, they're a they're a Seattle-based company and so, you know, Seattle, that whole region is is very active, whether the triathletes or runners and all that. So it's really important as part of their culture. And so for them to get behind an event that is in this community where they they have a very large presence uh, that has a connection to the military like we do um, that provides this platform for people to engage in being active and it promotes healthy wellness. I mean, so that's really the big ROI for that. And, you know, companies like that, again, you know, does, is it going to sell the next, you know, uh, uh, launch system? You know, it's one of the pieces in that larger, you know, uh, strategy they have. And again, I, I, I had over 20 years of experience working in the aerospace defense industry and business development and marketing. And so, you know, I'm very familiar with, you know, what companies invest in 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 that world, trade shows, what they do, why they go to trade shows, what they get out of them. And so I was very comfortable in, you know, trying to, you know, reach out and talk with a Lockheed or a Boeing and those those people about what we offer. And so, you know, for me, it was, I I already knew the language uh, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, a young entrepreneur, bike promoter, um, I think that to understand that your event has to produce some kind of ROI, it, it has to, you know, deliver something, whether it's, you know, you're, you have a grand vision that's going to be this great community event, or, you know, you're going to have your a sponsor brand there, it could generate sales, those are the kind of things you want to understand what that means and then how you can Build your event to to deliver those.
0: Thanks for joining us on another episode of No Training Wheels. Our last part of this interview with Rob Laborn, part three, which will be released in a couple of days is about the future of professional bike racing in the United States, and specifically with a focus on the race director's vision for where we are going. The National Association of Professional Race Directors, the NAPRD, is a organization that Rob helped found a couple years ago to create a forum or a venue for professional race directors throughout the country to get together and discuss and advocate and share ideas on behalf of different types of races like Clarendon or Rochester or Athens or Tulsa Tough. You name it, the biggest races in the country are a part of this organization and they're really on the forefront of trying to work together to create a great environment for our elite level American bike races. Remember, please like, share, subscribe this podcast anywhere where you get your podcast: Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Let us know how we're doing. Until next time. See you out on MacArthur Boulevard.